Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, take your Bibles, if you will, remain standing and turn them open to Matthew chapter 8, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, the text, the portion of this chapter that I will read is verse 9 through 17. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, blessed Lord, we gather under your banner of grace and mercy, Lord, now to hear your voice in your word that which is necessary for us to be saved and edified, Lord, prepared for that great homecoming and wedding banquet. Now, Father, continue to do your work as promised. Call your elect, Lord, if there is any here that has yet to come to Christ. Lord, bring them by your grace and mercy to this throne of grace. Father, for those who are already know, who know you and, Lord, have a, a relationship with you, edify, build up, educate, Lord, make strong so that, Lord, we can give you the glory, do your name. Lord, this morning, teach us what it is to be humble. Teach us about that grace of humility, Lord, that we all should have as your children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, beginning at verse 9, hear now the word of the Lord. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. And Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all, and thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, this morning is the third installment on this particular section of God's word, and hopefully it has proven to be a convicting one as we look into this parable and compare ourselves to it. That's the purpose and that's the point. Jesus has recognized that there were some in his company that were guilty of this hypocritical self-righteousness. 
Not only were they guilty of the self-righteousness, but they also held others in great contempt, exalting themselves above others in such a way that they disdained them. And Jesus recognized this and he addresses that attitude, that sinful, damning attitude in this parable. And we looked at the Pharisee in two sermons. This morning, we're going to begin looking at the one that Jesus said, go, he went to his house, he left the temple, and he went to his house and was justified. That's the one we want to look at. And we will compare ourselves to him, his humility. And we're going to ask ourselves this morning, do we possess this kind of humility? Do we bear the similar traits that he did in the parable? Do we have a genuine recognition, if you will, of our own sinfulness? There's the connection being made here with humility and repentance. And it's an important connection that we should not overlook. It may be this morning if we find ourselves lacking in the area of repentance, maybe it'll be corrected this morning as we address humility. Notice in the beginning it's coupled, the context of the parables coupled with what? Self-righteousness and contempt. Those two are coupled together. Here in this, in sort of the, the gracious side of it, we see a coupling of humility and repentance. People that lack humility lack real repentance. Now, that's what I want you to walk away with. That's one of the things I want you to walk away with. This is what I want to put in your heart and your mind this morning. And we'll see it from the text. I think it's already pretty obvious in many ways that we will open up other places in God's word and sort of surround it with supporting text for sure. So this morning, as we look at this genuine humility and what it looks like, we have to come to grips and we have to be aware that humility is no doubt a Christian grace. Now, what do I mean by Christian grace? Well, like the tax collector, he goes up to worship God and he no doubt humbled himself. That's what Jesus says here. Jesus makes the claim in verse 14 that I tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, Pharisee, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, tax collector, will be exalted. The Bible has a lot to say about humility. It might be one of the hardest things to identify. It, it may be one of the, 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 one of the, I think when you think about it, it's one of the hardest graces to really examine 
in yourself because we have such skewed understandings of what meekness or even humility is. And I'll work to define that in a moment. I mean, we know what pride looks like, don't we? I mean, we know what a prideful person looks like. We know when we are in the midst of a prideful person who talks about themselves, right? They talk about themselves. They talk about how good they are, how they're not like others. So we, we can identify that. But can we truly, really identify what genuine humility looks like? Now, I will go ahead and say that it's not someone who speaks so softly no one can hear them. It's not someone who just sort of kicks rocks all the time. That's just not humility, and we're going to see this. We're going we're gonna, to, I think you will walk away understanding that's not it. Paul described his ministry in Acts 9, uh, 2019 as a ministry of humility. He said, I serving the Lord, that is, to the congregation at Ephesus, he said, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. What Paul was saying is, my ministry, in my ministry, I have humbled myself to endure whatever it is God has put me in to minister the grace of God to you. So it's a ministry of humility. In Ephesians, Paul wrote that humility must be a Christian trait. It must be the way we interact with one another. Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. We talk a lot about love. The L word is used all the time, but we don't talk a lot about humility. In Philippians, Paul, in addressing the, the problem of unity in the Philippi church, and Paul, what does he do? He says, do nothing, in verse 3, from, selfish and, uh, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul says, how are we going to remedy this disunity in the church? How are we going to take care of the faction that's been created in the church of Philip? Well, first of all, we're going to humble ourselves. And we're going to recognize the benefits and the gifts and the usefulness of others. James chapter 1 verse 21 tells us that the word of God must be received in humility. And we see in that, that statement that what James is saying is when you bring yourself under the reading of the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, or the teaching, any type of instruction of the word of God, when you bring yourself, what is it to receive it with humility? Well, it involves submission to it. To humble oneself under the grace of the word of God is to come with a mind and a heart that says, I will submit to the teaching of the of the word of God. I will submit to my Lord. I'm his bondservant. 
I come with the, the heart of humility, ready to be educated, ready to be filled up, ready to be corrected. So we see just in those few passages, and there are many more that address what it is to be humble or exercise humility. Those are just a few. Now let's define humility. Let's, let's begin looking at some of the components of genuine humility, and we'll find them in our text, or at least some of them. Now what are these components? Well, first of all, I've already said it's a grace. And what I mean by that is, is it, it's not that only Christians can be submissive. But only Christians can be submissive in an in a evangelical way, in a grace way. That is, it's a work of the Spirit of God in us. In fact, let me, let me just show this point to you. I don't want to turn to a pile of scriptures because I want to keep you focused on our parable. But just turn to um, Philippians 2 and look at verse 13. Now, Paul begins addressing this disunity in the congregation and he does this by pointing out the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He says, now notice how our Lord was incarnate. He humbled himself and became a man. And I'm not gonna read it, but look at verse 13. For it is... God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, my point in that is this, that this, this particular disposition of humility, this grace that flows out of the Christian's regenerated heart is a work of the Spirit of God. God is working in us this trait, this characteristic, this grace of humility. And so that's the first characteristic. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual thing. Because it is spiritual, it possesses this characteristic of modesty. and unass- It's modest and it's unassuming. When I say unassuming, I mean it's not presumptuous. You know, modesty doesn't just address clothing. Now, we've narrowed down, we've truncated the use of that word, and we've narrowed it down just to, to address the way someone might, might clothe themselves. But modesty is a broader term than that. The original use of modesty, I mean, a person can be obnoxious, loud, boisterous, you know, offensive. That's immodest behavior. We can be immodest in our, our speech. We can be immodest in, in, in being like that loud person that we want attention. And an attention seeker is an immodest person. Well, just look at social media. What I say, it's not presumptuous, brothers and sisters. It's not like, what do we see here? In this tax collector, 
We see the Pharisee, he stands up front. He stands to get attention. Not the, not the, I mean, the Pharisee does this. The tax collector, what does he do? Well, he's some distance away. He's not presumptuous. He's not immodest. He's not like the Pharisee who wants to stand up and draw attention to himself and say, hey, everybody notice I'm praying. No, no. See, he's immodest. He's the attention hog here. The tax collector doesn't want attention from the people around him. He's not trying to distract others from worshiping God. He's come to bring himself to the, to the grace of God. And he's unassuming. He doesn't come thinking, oh, Lord, you're going to receive me. You're going to be happy with me. You're going to be so pleased with me. No, 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 that's the Pharisee. The tax collector comes unassuming, without precept. He says, I come, oh, Lord, beating his chest, saying, have mercy on me because I don't deserve this. And you're not obligated as a just and holy God to receive it. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't think I have to go into great detail about the mindset of so many professing Christians today that view God as sort of the big daddy in the sky. And when I get there, I'm just gonna run and jump on his lap and have a good old time. We need to look for these in ourselves. The second thing, so that's number one, the second component of humility is a sense of one's own limitations. There's a sense of limitation. We all have them. I mean, that's assumed in the categories of inferiors, equals, and superiors. We have people that we are superior to in some ways. We have people that we are equal with in some ways. And we have people that we are inferiors with in some ways. But humility is a recognition of those limitations. It's a, it's a person with great awareness of himself. And so you, it's hard to be presumptuous if you are aware that here's my limitations. And when those limitations are understood, we see that in some situations and circumstances, they are insignificant, or at least our, uh, who we are is insignificant when compared to others. There are others, men and women, better than we are in various ways. And humility recognizes that. Humility is okay with that. Now, pride isn't, of course. Pride wants to be top dog. The prideful person can't hardly admit wrong and certainly can't be inferior. That's a problem. That's an issue, but not with the humble person. Thirdly, it involves an honest and realistic willingness not only to acknowledge these things, but also to support others who are better. 
Now let that one sink in. Humility is, is not only embraces the reality of those limitations, but it also recognizes the strengths of others and exalts them. You know, brothers and sisters, you do this much better than I do. Let me ask your advice, your wisdom on these things. Or listen, I will help you do this. I'll be glad to aid you, but would you lead this because you're better at it than I am? It's not putting off your duties on someone else. That's not it. It's like, oh, no, 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 you, you got this gift I don't. I mean, I remember being a young Christian and, you know, those, um, you know, the spiritual gift te- tests that were circulate through churches and you take them and, and you, they were supposed to identify, you know, areas in, that you were gifted at. And, and what I found was is that, People would, you know, be like, oh, hey, here's my gift. And, uh, and they were asked to do something. They go, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have the gift of service. <laughs> you know, my test didn't reveal that. And they put that off. And I, at first I thought this was a great thing, but as I grew in the Lord, I come to realize it's just another human mechanism that's being used in the church to sort of stimulate some spiritual good and how we as humans who are fallen and gravitating to sin are willing to just put off our responsibilities. Well, you might not be gifted at service, but guess what happens if you're the only one to do it? You got to do it and you got to do it joyfully and you got to do it under the power and the grace and the mercies of God. I mean, you've got to do it as it becometh of a Christian to do it. I've have grown to believe this about the gifts of the church. I believe every pastor that's called to a particular congregation is gifted to serve that congregation. God gives it to him. And I believe that the People possess all the gifts necessary to do the work of that particular church, what God's called them to do. Every church is equipped for its own work. Amen. And I think that's the way it needs to be seen. Now, there's another, this is the last one here. And it involves one that we hear all the time, but it is that of treating others as we want to be treated taking into account limitations of a relationship and weaknesses of the relationship. All relationships are not equal. They're not on the same plane. Everybody's not as likable as others. You know, everybody's not as friendly as others, but at the same time, we must fellowship, we must serve with, we must work with one another in what? Humility. Because we, we're, we, are, we are acting out what the Spirit is doing in our hearts, our lives, cultivating in us this humility. And learning how to work with those around us that may be limited or that may be weaker in some aspects or another, but yet nevertheless working with great harm, harmony, unity, and love and charity. To see God's will accomplished. And the last one, and this is a biggie, well, just willing to be corrected. Willing to be corrected. 
even when we think we're right, willing to listen, willing to bring ourselves under the admonition of others. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about just any casting out there of an accusation. I'm sure, listen, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, family members, dear friends, whatnot. I mean, we all should have people in our circles that when they come to us, well, we want to listen. Because it's not normal for when people sit down and they say, brother or sister, I want to talk to you about something. We know that this brother or sister loves us and that we are willing to hear what they have to say. Pray about it and seek God's face in, in that. But humility does receive it and take it seriously. It's what genuine humility looks like. Now look at the parable itself. I mean, notice the tax collector. Obviously, he went up to the temple It looks like this is somehow a revelation of his regeneration and his conversion. And this is him bringing himself before God, beating his chest, begging, uh, throwing himself upon the mercy of God. Well, listen, what, what what did this tax collector hear to bring him up to the temple? What was it? What was the means God used for that tax collector to come under that sort of conviction and say, I need to go worship God. I need to be in the Lord's house. I need to go and be with God's people. I need to go and humble myself before the Lord. I need to go visit with the Lord. What was it? We're not told, but I doubt it was anything, you know, unlike what we experience, whether somebody tells us something, somebody admonishes us, we hear the gospel preach. I mean, we don't know. I mean, it's a parable. It's a story. It's not, it's not intended to be that detailed or Jesus would have given us those details, but nevertheless, it's the same way we come to these types of convictions and, and desires. It's the same thing the Holy Spirit uses in your life. Somebody says something. Maybe it's in a very heated moment. And I said, look, you know I love you. I said, but here, here, this is a problem. Will you humble yourself? And the Spirit of God begins working in that humility. Brothers and sisters, when we think about this humility and we see this in the parable, but we see it in the life of our Lord Jesus There are numerous passages of scriptures that we could turn to that speak of his humility. I'm just going to mention five this morning. We've already looked at one. There's no sense in looking at it again, but that's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And it talks about Jesus humbling himself to become a man. Now, the point that Paul makes when he uses that is that, look, who the son of God is. He's God. Look what he left. He owed nothing to anyone 
but he saw a great need. He's a superior. He saw a, a, a tremendous need. What was the need? Well, the salvation of people that couldn't save themselves. The salvation of people that, well, fell in Adam who turned from God in the very beginning. That's why we call that doctrine the fall. All of mankind who remain in Adam are part of that fall. They have fallen from that original creative uh, place that Adam was set in glory and paradise. And there's a need to turn back to God, but they are unable to turn back to God in and of their own strength. And so, so Jesus left glory and he comes down and he provides a way of salvation. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated to. He chose to. And that's what makes it beautiful. He's not obligated to us. Yet he set his love upon us and he, look what it cost him. To, to robe himself in human flesh. So that's, that's the first one. And then you take Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, I'm humble. Is Jesus a weakling? Because sometimes, I mean, maybe you think humility is a weakness. Was Jesus weak? No. Not at all. And Jesus is saying, listen, come to me. I, take my yoke. When is, take my doctrine. Take my teaching. For I am lowly and I, I have compassion on you. I have your best interest at in mind here. I want to teach you. I want to save you. I want to edify you. I want to prepare you for a glory that you don't deserve. But I want you to have it. John 13, verses 3 and 5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking up a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. What was Jesus doing when he girded a towel around his waist and sat in the place of a slave, the lowest slave in the house, washed feet and washed his disciples' feet. What was he, what was he, uh, how was he identifying himself in that moment? I am but your servant. This is what humility looks like. This is what it looks, I don't mind humbling myself. He's a superior in this situation. Jesus is a superior man among men and had no problem humbling himself saying, you know what, I'll take the lowly position here and I possess all these gifts. I possess the power to steal the waves. I possess the power to walk on water. I possess the power to call a fish to come up and give us the money for our taxes. I will humble myself as a servant and serve you. What an example. Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to 
serve and give his life a ransom for many. I think that, you know, again, there are probably a dozen more texts we could use. But those, I think, paint the picture for us. Well, let's look more particularly at this humility and how it flows to repentance, okay? Now, if you were to take your Westminster Confession of Faith, you'd open them up, you're not gonna find a chapter on humility. Does that mean humility's not there? Well, not at all. Humility is identified in the chapter on repentance. It's, it's, though it's not stated, it is clearly identified in all of its constituent parts, in all of its framework, right? That is teaching us that humility is a vital, 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 essential aspect of genuine repentance, I mean, think about it. it. It's not a foreign concept. How in the world can you truly repent of your sins if you're not humbled by the justice of God, if you're not humbled by the law of God, if you're not humbled by the holiness of God? How in the world would you ever genuinely repent of your sins if you've not been brought under that glory of God in that fashion to say, woe is me, I am a person of unclean lips. How could you offer genuine repentance if you're not truly humbled under that glory of God? Think about it. And that's why it's always been one of those things that have certainly struck me early on because of me coming out of a more uh, man-centered understanding of salvation into a more sovereign-centered understanding of salvation, and that is that somehow I did this myself, that somehow I aided Christ in saving me. It was those illustrations, you know, that salvation is like the casting out of a life preserver to someone drowning. And I'm like, yeah, that's right, that was me, I was drowning. Well, then as I've come to be biblical aware, biblically aware, right, I learned, oh, wait a minute, I'm not a drowning sinner, I'm a dead sinner. I can't grab the life buoy. I don't have the ability, nor do I even want to. It's the grace of God working in me that raises the dead sinner to see his or her sins. And that, that, that initial surge of thankfulness flows out of what? Humility. Doesn't it? Lord, thank you. I don't deserve you. I mean, how many, I mean, look, brothers and sisters, honestly, we sit here this, we sit here this morning and we can say, Lord, if you gave me nothing more, nothing else, if all you, if you just did nothing else, thank you because you've done so much. I'm the humble servant. I don't deserve. What do servants deserve in the house of the master? Nothing. They're servants. But not just servants, are we? 
We're children of the king. And we are giving by grace privileges, blessings, honor. We're at the table with our father. We are robed in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus. We have placed on our hand the insignia ring of the king and we are members of his family. We are adopted by grace. Humble. Well, how does the confession of faith lead us into this aspect of repentance. Well, first of all, we acknowledge our own sinfulness. That's what repentance is, isn't it? That takes humility. You know, um, I mean, we don't pray like, Lord, you know, you know I'm better than this, Lord. Uh, You know, I didn't mean to uh, Lord, you know it's these people around me. We don't pray like that. I hope we don't pray like that. If we do pray like that, let's repent of that today and let's stop praying like that. Let's start praying that prayer that flows out of that, that humility that says, Lord, I sin because I'm a sinner. I have problems with people because I'm I'm a sinner. I have a problem with lust because I'm a sinner. I have problems with my job because I'm a sinner. And Lord, I'm bringing myself under your dominion, under your rule, under your reign. And I'm acknowledging, Lord, these, these sins that flow out of my heart are mine. Are mine. Now, the confession identifies a couple of these, that that repentance, these traits of genuine repentance. I'm going to mention them to you, and we're going to tie them to humility, okay? Now, the first one is sight and sense, the confession says. That is, out of the sight and sense, a sinner repents of his sin. Now, Now, this is an interesting phrase, really, but it's an important one. It's an old English concept. And, and what it is addressing is that this, this phrase, sight and sense, refers to the person having a deep awareness of the danger and moral repulsiveness of his own sins. There's this danger. There is this repulsiveness of his own sins. That is sight, he sees it, and sense, he feels it. There's emotion involved. There's the intellect. I mean, it's not just the visible sight. I mean, it's, it's the eyes looking at a circumstance, but it's the mind being able to reason and calculate through. This is what sin does. It brings misery, death, and turmoil. It's the opposite of peace and tranquility and life. 
And the Spirit of God works in this individual, works in you, works in me, works in all of the elect to bring us to this sight and sense of the awareness of our own sins. Now, there are some scripture references used. Let's turn to the first one, Luke chapter 13. You might remember this one from the parable that we looked at not long ago about this, the tower that had fallen and, and Jesus, his followers really wanting to understand that. And, but look at verse three. I'm not gonna read the whole text. You can do that at your own leisure in your own time. But in verse three, what does Jesus say? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That is the idea that, listen, it's not just this group that needs repentance. It's not just that group that needs to repent. It's the whole condemned world under the wrath of God that needs repentance. And we don't have to look far to see it. Let me give you an example. I, I used this with my children when they were young and growing up. We used to have these billboards all around the city of this is someone before drugs and this is someone after drugs. And multiple times I'd stop and say, now you see this, you see this. I mean, it was horrific. Now this is not in any way making fun of the person. It's me helping to identify what sin looks like, the dangers of it the death of it. What does it do? It kills you. Sin is deadening. It deadens the heart. It deadens the conscience. It deadens the person's life. I mean, have you ever? And so I'd used it to say, this is where you will, this is how you could possibly turn out if you take these paths. Just understand that. These are the consequences. This is the fruit of it. I don't know if you've ever met a person that has left the church and not doing well. God's hand's heavy upon them. And if you've ever run into that person, you'd say, I don't even recognize them. They've changed because of that deadening effect of sin. This, this, is what it, this is what is being talked about and understood in this sight and sense that the phrase the confession uses. Turn to Psalm 51. This might be the last one we're able to, Scripture that we'll get to this morning and certainly pick up on the rest of this next week. But Psalm 51, you all are very aware of the psalm itself. It's, it's that, right, that pinnacle paradigm psalm of David in his repentance, isn't it? But this is what we would call, this was, David wrote several psalms addressing his re repentance, cataloging his experience under the heavy hand of, of this weight of guilt and sorrow 
But Psalm 51 is the last one related particularly to this sin. And it's more of a victorious psalm because he's been delivered from that guilt. And notice what he says in verse 1. And I'm going to read those first three verses. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. That word transgressions means rebellion. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's related to his, the corruption of his character. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now that's, that's, a, that's a statement of humility. David's been humbled. He's been humbled in this sin, this grievous sin. God humbled him. Now, it took some time, but God did it. And what David is saying is, all of that was God's mercy. Because he didn't, I don't deserve to be brought back to the Lord. I don't deserve for God to continue to, to, to plead through his prophets for me to repent. I mean, how many times did Nathan actually go to him? We don't know. But we know the last time Nathan went to him. And he used the parable to stir David's conscience. It is, he's, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if before it was just confrontation with David. And David goes, I'm the king. I'm the king. But this time, Nathan in wisdom comes with the parable of the, the, the little ewe lamb. And he used a parable about an abusive rich person who stole that poor man's ewe lamb. The only one he had, his prized possession. And it infuriated David. God used that prophet with a story to bring light to his conscience. And when David heard that story, he was filled with rage and wanted justice for that man. And that's when Nathan said, David, you're the one. You're the guilty party. And he broke. Brothers and sisters, if we are going, if we are going to have this grace of humility and that humility truly flowing into that, that what we call genuine repentance, we have to have the sight and sense of our sins, right? Are you arrogant? Identify it. You lazy? Identify it. A complainer, identify it. And bring it to the Lord, whatever it is. And say, Lord, wash me. Be merciful to me. Make me clean. And as we'll jump, make me useful. Because that's what humility, true humility doesn't make one lazy and indifferent and, you know, 
standoffish. No, humility says, I, I bring what I have. It's not, you know, it may not be much. It may be a lot. I don't know, but I bring it and I want to serve the Lord here. What can I do? What can I do? Doesn't matter, young, old, married, single. Doesn't matter. What can I do? How can I bring who I am before the Lord? Because this is, this is me. This is what the Lord's done. I mean, even the apostle Paul says, listen, I am the, the least of all the apostles. Now, what did Paul mean by that? He didn't mean that he was the less gifted one because in another place of scripture, Paul says, I'm gifted above all the others. Was he being prideful when he said that? No. When he said, I'm the least of the apostles, what he's saying is, my sins far exceed their sins. How? Because we have this idea that all sins are equal. They're not. Paul is saying, I persecuted the church. I put people in jail. I watched people stoned for the testimony of Jesus. I am guilty far more than my brother apostles are. They didn't persecute the church. I did. That's me. And that's the reality. And this is who God's called. I don't deserve it. But I will serve my King and my Savior. And I will do so humbly and by the power, the grace, the Spirit of God, walking daily in repentance. Well, let's bring this portion of the message to close. What does this mean for us? How humble are you? Do you bear these characteristics? Can you find them in your life? Now, don't say you can because you know they ought to be there. You know, it's like the person that says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing all of these things, A, B, C, D. They just started that day. And they give the impression that they've been doing it for a long time. That's not true. That's not a reality, is it? Don't say, yes, these traits are in my life if you just know they ought to be there and you want them to be there, but they're not. So compare yourself to the tax collector. He humbled himself. He goes up to the temple. He meets with God. But he doesn't come with presumption. No. He comes unassuming. God, you owe me nothing. And anything you give me will be by grace. Because I've sinned against your justice. I've sinned against your holiness. I have sinned against your covenant. So Lord, you owe me nothing. I come, I just come beating my chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me. When's the last time we did that in our hearts? I know we're Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian. Special place in God's kingdom. Not really. We all come on the same ground at the foot of the cross. 
brothers and sisters, the, the duty that the Lord's laid before us, before all of us in this message is if we aren't humble, seek God's saving grace. Yeah. Seek God savingly and become a Christian. Become a believer in God. Become a, a lover of Jesus Christ and then the Spirit of God will begin working that grace in you and you'll find out your repentance becomes richer and way more meaningful than ever before it won't just be words just coming out of your mouth because oh well this is bad this is bad this is bad this is bad i shouldn't do it i shouldn't do it i shouldn't do it no it'll be lord this is who i am but you need to wash me and make me clean you're holy not me and you know what will be the result Peace, joy, unity, love. You will begin to experience the favor of God. What did Jesus say about the tax collector? I tell you the truth, this man went to his house justified, made right before God. Isn't that a great place to be? Yes. And it begins, brothers and sisters, as we understand what's required of us. Humble yourself before the justice and holiness and mercies of God. And he'll wash you and make you clean. And he'll receive you and save you and you'll go away justified. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, we are thankful for this grace. Lord, that we have had the opportunity to look at this parable and to identify a great need, Lord, that of this trait, this grace of humility, Lord, that flows to repentance. Lord, we need this. We need to understand what this is. And we need to make sure that, Lord, we continue to, to grow up in the things of, of the word of God and of Christ in his kingdom. And Lord, we want to be humble. We want to be your humble servants. And so, Lord, bring to bear, Lord, bring this text, bring this truth to bear in our lives, that we would express, exhibit the fruit of what it is to be humbled before you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.